Did he way. look in your direction at all? He he made eye contact with a few people. The person he looked the hardest at, who we know we know very well, was sitting right across from us. And as he walked down, he just stared at Jody Cantor. That's who he stared at. At Jody Cantor, the New York Times journalist Jody who Cantor broke the story. Blue- if I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Blew him a kiss with her eyes. <laughs> I'm Tina Brown and you're listening to TBD. One could almost feel sorry for actor James Woods when he decided to take on Amber Tamlin. Almost. In 2017, before Me Too had truly entered the national consciousness, Amber tweeted about Woods trying to pick her up when he was in his 50s and she was just 16. He then had the temerity to say that she was lying about this creepy encounter. Well, Woods messed with the wrong babe. Tablin soon published a devastating open letter to him in Teen Vogue, writing, Since you've now called me a liar, I will now call you a silencer. I see your gaslight and now will raise you a scorched earth. Wow. Last year, Tamlin showed that her fight against predatory behavior wasn't fleeting when she helped found the Time's Up movement. And now Amber's published a passionate new manifesto, Era of Ignition, in which she turns up the volume on her fight for gender and racial equality, reproductive rights, and pay parity. As James Woods learned, Tamlin is helping make feminists the ultimate F-word. I spoke with Amber before a packed room at the On Air Fest in Brooklyn. So, Amber Tamlin, welcome to TBD. Um, so, I love the title of your book, Era of Ignition. I mean, it's, it's provocative. It's in your face. I love it. What do you think is going up or down in flames? Well, I, I was trying to think about a term to use for what comes after the rage, right? What comes after um, all of this sort of anger and frustration and upheaval that we've been feeling culturally and, and looking at our sort of national existential crisis that we're in right now. I, I really do feel like we're in this um, deep state of a retooling, which is a good thing. Uh, I I believe heavily in the chaos that we're experiencing right now because I think clarity comes out of that chaos ultimately. But you can't have one without the other. You can't just have immediate change without having, you know, reckoning and revolution, which we are in the center of that. So I wanted to frame it as an actual era that we're living in, an actual time in which this sort of condensed, intense change is happening for all of us. So was the, the founding of Time's Up a good sort of outlet for you in in trying to make sense of this rage? Yeah, very much so. I mean, times have really started when when women started to get into rooms with each other across the country, predominantly in Los Angeles and New York, especially in the entertainment business specifically. And we were just getting together and talking about the things that not only made us angry and sharing stories that we had never 
shared before um, that were deeply personal and painful about growing up in the entertainment business, but then also just letting that palpable rage be proactive and be something that was gonna be tied to an action so that we knew whatever was manifested out of those meetings had to be tied to something real. Um, there was another interesting aspect of this, which I think is another major part of our era of ignition and this cultural change that's happening. So for the first time ever, in that particular instance, women were gathering in rooms together um, devoid of a male perspective. So it was just women, just women talking to one another. And when that happened, there was a secondary issue that arose that is something that has never really been able to be addressed, especially within the entertainment business, which was the power imbalance between white women and non-white women. So we were having these really powerful conversations and dialogues that were often very difficult about who is actually being seen, who is not being seen, who is being supported, who is not being supported, who's being hired, who's not being hired, all the way down the line. So we were able, devoid of a patriarchal lens, to sit down with one another and say, this is much deeper than we originally thought. And if we are going to be able to change anything in this business and demand what we want to demand, then we first have to own how we failed one another. And we have to be able to look beyond that and say that each of our experiences and our differences is what makes us so powerful. And that all of those must be honored, not just the powerful white women in Hollywood. Though these were real conversations that came out of that. When, I mean, one of the things I admire about you very much, Amber, is that when the Weinstein story first broke, you condemned him on Twitter literally minutes later before really you knew that anyone else was going to be stepping forward to join those women who were named in those first very brave pieces that broke. Did you think about the risks then? Because it took a while, because many of your acting colleagues still didn't want to join in those voices because they didn't know which way it was going to lean. I mean, maybe Weinstein was going to wind up triumphing over this bad press, as it were, as yeah. opposed to it going the way we know it went. So I, I think there's many, many truths about that moment in, in history. One truth is, I didn't have as much to lose, frankly, as somebody who might be far more famous, like a large movie star. But secondly, the cumulative trauma of learning that the most powerful man in our business was not just a butt grabber, was not just someone who had done some bad things, but was a serial sexual predator. And I don't care what anyone says, not everyone knew that. They really didn't. That's a fact. I'm telling you as someone who, is, who was one of those people, I was always protected. I think many of those women were protected. And so to learn that in that moment, it was like a deer caught in the headlights. We were all just taking a moment because it was shocking. It was utterly shocking. And as you saw, it was like, who are going to be the first people to come out and put a little bit of a neck out on the line to say, I condemn him for this. Who's gonna open the floodgates? And to me, that was the most important reason to do it. I also get really angry, though, that we as a culture unanimously turned to the women who have been asked to be, you know, five foot eight and weigh 115 pounds, women who are asked to just be nothing more than clothing hangers, to hang expensive dresses on, whose voices don't matter, who have been physically and emotionally abused, and I'm talking specific to this industry, which I understand is an extremely 
uh, privileged industry. But in specific to that moment, it really upset me that the lens shifted to actresses and to women, as opposed to saying... You mean, you mean blaming the, those... Bla blaming them for, for not speaking out. so-called enabling up. or not speaking out. Why yeah. weren't we asking the actors? Why weren't we asking the moguls, the other producers, the heads of studios... The agents. ...to jump in? Yeah. And I'm only talking about the exact moment after the article came out like the few hours that happened after that moment. Mm -hmm. Well, you've actually been to uh, some of the, 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 you know, the trial hearing, uh, yeah. the, the pre-trial hearing of Harvey Weinstein, and you've actually attended some of those, right, with the, in solidarity with yeah. the accusers. What was that like to go into that courtroom and see Harvey, who I'm sure you knew before, and be sitting there with some of the accusers? It was um, really intense. And um, I know that for some of the women that I went with, um, they are all survivors. Uh, they have all been through some form of sexual abuse or assault, whether it was at the hands of Harvey or whether it was Bill Cosby or whether it was other men who have not been mentioned. So I think what was so powerful about it is that we went together and we sat next to each other and we held hands and there was a sense of having a silent witness, just being witness in the room to a good version of the judicial process and seeing something that actually felt like it was deserved and that there was some kind of justice in the world. And even if for some of those women, they have never had justice in their own lives with their own experiences, to be there and witness this on behalf of some of the women who didn't feel comfortable going that day was a very, very powerful reminder that the solidarity of women when it is there and when it is truly intersectional is arguably the most powerful type of behavior and uh, thing that we have to offer in this world to each other. Mm -hmm. And that did really he, did, felt did that way. Did he look in your direction at all? He, he made eye contact with a few people. The person he looked the hardest at was who we know, we know very well was sitting right across from us. And as he walked down, he just stared at Jody Cantor. That's who he stared at. At Jody Cantor, the New York Times journalist Jody who Cantor broke the story. Jody Cantor blew him a kiss with her eyes. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, a lot of, a lot of these big male figures have boomed and crashed, you know, in the wake of this Weinstein thing. We've seen a, yeah. so many sort of iconic male careers, you know, crashing as we, as we know. Uh, you've said that you think there shouldn't be any talk of redemption right now, that these people have to just disappear, correct? I wrote a piece for the Times um, talking about redemption. Uh, that was, I think, in the moment. Um, I had been speaking to a lot of men right after you know, Time's Up was formed and 2017's Me Too movement hit, and there was a real sense of this is going too far, it's too scary, it's talk of backlashes, and I just wanted to remind everybody that redemption has to come with some form of atonement. You have to make some form of amends. You have to show the reason why we should all accept you back into, you know, the place of power that you were in before. But also at the same time, again, for me, everything is about shifting the narrative, right? Like we look here because we're told this is where the story is. This is where the salacious aspect is. This is where we should all be focusing our energy the negative, the negative. And I wanted to say, forget those people for a minute. They need to go do their work. It is not on any of us here to help someone, to help some man or woman figure out their redemption. That's their work to be done. That's accountability. That's the autonomy of our own living, our own actions. And in that moment, I, always, I was always wanting to pivot and say, can't we just talk about the amazing 
people that we should be hiring in comedy. We talk about Aquafina. we talk about Ali Wong. Can we talk about the people who are rising up and should have their own television shows on FX? Can we talk about the, the show creators, the, the writers, the people who, are, who actually deserve to have a platform, who have something interesting to say, who have an interesting perspective, who are smart and witty and brilliant, and who are not whipping their dicks out in meetings? <laughs> so like, can we just, can we focus on that? Yeah. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug, ignored a leaky faucet, pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects, but there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few taps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects. And say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Instead of talking about redemption. Do you sometimes ask yourself, like, what is the matter with men right now? I mean, when we saw what happened... But it's not, I mean, it's not all men. No, no, it's not. But when you look at something like, I don't know, R. Kelly, Robert Kraft, you know, the other day, that was kind of rather wonderful. Dr. Cornell West was on a show with Anderson Cooper, and he suddenly put his head in his hands and he said, man, the brothers are out of control. (laughs) And I thought, that is so right. The brothers are out of control. Uh, do you, I mean, it's, you couldn't imagine like Amy Klobuchar, you know, yeah. sexting uh, pictures of her private parts somewhere. I mean, it would be very strange. What do you think is going on here? Look, the, the core issue at all of this is always power. And it's about looking at who is controlling the power. And there are certain races, predominantly white women, white men, and there are certain genders, predominantly men, that are in these positions of power and are are not leveling the playing field and not allowing anyone else to step into those places. A great example would also just be somebody like a Susan Collins, which I always talk about the Susan Collins effect. And you can point to any version of a woman, not just in politics, but across industry lines, who is upholding a dangerous system and would rather side with her brethren, no matter what they're doing, than, than with women who are literally banging down doors saying, please don't allow this to happen. This person has caused physical and emotional damage, has harmed us, a whole nation that's screaming that. And you still want to side with the 12 powerful white men who are in that room and, and in that position to make that uh, arrangement. That aside, I think it's interesting right now what's happening with so many women running for president. And when I watch the like pervasive, sexist, racist 
uh, talking about like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and what she's wearing and that she's too mean and that she's not smart enough and all of these, these terms. It's, it's kind of wild to watch it because I worked for Hillary Clinton's campaign for over two, two presidential cycles. Um, and I saw that all the time, the misogyny so and the true. sexism. And no, again, no matter how you feel about her, it must be understood that that played such a large, pervasive part of the 2016 campaign and what ultimately happened with that. Of, of the four women who are currently announced, who have announced so far, you know, Harris, Warren, Gillibrand, Klobuchar, any of them inspire you to go on the trail with them? I honestly, I love all of them. And I think I've, in an effort to relieve my central nervous system of some of the anger I have felt over the last like four years, literally, if I like the, the, the day that Bernie Sanders announced, my whole body was like, it was walking out of the house, just sort of frozen. Um, not angry at him, just it brought up pain, it brought up old memories. So I think for me, one of the decisions that I have made is to consciously see in the distance, not who the Democratic president is going to be, but seeing Donald Trump get the fuck out of office. <laughs> and that to me is the only thing that I care about. Right. So, so you would vote for Bernie if, the, if it's Bernie? I would, I absolutely would if he was, um, I would do the thing that a lot of people didn't do for Hillary Clinton. I would bite my tongue and I would go vote for him. Mm -hmm. I think he's a great candidate. I think he has a lot to offer. And I think he would make a great president. I do. That's very, what I do you, think what women do you think would be needs, better, but I think he would make he a great need, president. Do you, what do you think he, he needs to turn around that woman who voted for Hillary and felt bitterly betrayed by him last time? I think his Achilles heel is going to be uh, some of his stubbornness and his inability to figure out how to make amends with the large votership of women and some men who... Uh, who still remain angry with him. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you, you know, let's just turn a little bit, um, Amber, to your earlier life, because you started acting at the age of nine, and basically you worked nonstop for the next 17 years, first at, at General Hospital show, and then as the lead on Joan of Arcadia. Do you think that being a child actress helped you develop the powerful voice that you now have, or did it make it harder? Did, was it an impediment to your own evolution as an activist? I think it was a little bit of both. Um, I think uh, to some degree, to some degree, it kept me, um, it gave me power only in one area. And it told me that I would be the most powerful if I could go into someone else's room and audition the best that I could and look the best that I could and present myself the absolute best that I could for other people's art. And that if I was only ever the interpreter of art, not the creator of art, then I could succeed, that my voice would succeed. Um, this has taken me years to figure out and understand, but that's where I was always told and that's where I believed, that's where I should exist. And so much of what I write about in, in Era of Ignition is some of the real difficulties and challenges trying to, trying to get into some of those rooms and be seen as something other than an actress. Was there one particular experience that made you realize, I just don't want to be an actress anymore? Oh, my God. Um, oh, there's too many. There's too many. <laughs> one that comes to mind... Um, I've actually never told this story before. I have a very vivid memory uh, when I was young, when I was about 13, which is like two years after I started. 
there's many versions of this story, but I did went in and auditioned for a film with a fairly famous director where it wasn't a speaking role, but where I was playing a young girl that was being sexually abused by a guy and the feds, you know, bust in and uh, stop him from doing it. And so the audition was not anything other than him, uh, this director wanting to talk to me and, you know, tell me what the scene would entail. And I'll never forget I was wearing this like dark mahogany red slinky dress that I think was from, I can't remember the name of the store, but I used to go to it all the time. But uh, he was making comments about my breasts and that he could see I was starting to get breasts and that was great. And he said something to the effect of, you know, you're probably becoming a woman. You probably don't have your period yet, which is about the perfect age. He was literally dressing me down. And I remember just going back out to the, to the car where my dad was waiting and getting in the car and putting the seat down and turning over on my side and just like shaking. And I wouldn't tell him what was wrong. But that's an example, mm-hmm. like that kind of inappropriate behavior. There's a million stories like that. You thought you were just being invaded I don't think, you know, I think when you're that young, but I think it probably also happens, it does happen to women. I mean, mm-hmm. I told a story about an ex, literally a, a very abusive relationship, which I talk some about in the book, you know, where at one time I was in a club and he, he, he was very mentally ill and picked me up by the vagina and dragged me out of the club. And I shared this story some time ago, right after Donald Trump was talking about grabbing women by their genitalia, because I wanted people to, to understand that it's not just locker room talk, that words actually have power and words are also actions. And those two things are inextricably linked. Why did you stay with him for five years? Because you did stay with him for a long time and you, know, you were actually independently able to leave. I, I talk a lot about this in the book. I think that the power of older men who groom young women, sometimes girls, to be partners that they can control is one of the scariest and oldest truths in the book. Mm -hmm. And I was one of those. Uh, I was a version of that. And just because I was... How old were you when you first got together with him? I think I was 16 or 17. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he was probably in his late 30s. Right. So... That must have been a great uh, anxiety to your parents, wasn't it? It was awful. It Mm. almost killed my father. Mm -hmm. He did everything he could to get me to leave, but then by the time I was 18, what are you going to do? And I was was that stubborn girl. I was the one that the more people said this person's bad for you, the more I was going to stay. And that is, you know, that's a story as old as time. And it took a long time to even be able to publicly talk about this without feeling shame. Um, in, the, in the book, I mean, the, the whole story of Woody Allen and Suni is yeah. something that you meditate upon and, and, That's and, the, and I use. tell the story of my own abuse through the lens of their relationship, not to compare, because obviously my five-year abusive relationship is very different, but when you talk about being on the inside of grooming, when you've been with someone for two or three decades, since you were young, since you, were, you had no real life experience, how can you possibly know you weren't groomed respectfully? That's the argument that I make. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Bite, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Bite.com. Bite Clear Liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. 
Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Okay, you said that co-writing and directing the film uh, Painted Black was like for you being given a grenade full of freedom. So this yeah. was your breakout yeah. project. Yeah. It took an awful lot to get it going, right? Yeah. Why was it so important to you at that moment to do it? I, you know, doing Painted Black was such a... Uh, extraordinary experience and freeing experience I think because you know so much of acting is like 50% yours I can go in and I can do a scene and I can kill it but then can the director kill it can the producers kill it can will someone buy it and want to kill it like it, it goes out much further than me I'm not I'm in control of one very small portion of my own creativity when you're acting. And that can be like a very painful, frustrating thing that actors go through is you pour your heart and soul and physicality into something and then no, it never sees the light of day. But making a film was so powerful to me because it was 100% mine whether it succeeded or failed. So the, the success was in the fact that I was able to create something that was my own vision and had my own voice and had something unique to say. That to me was one of the most um, powerful experiences was to be able to just say, uh, this belongs to me, this is coming from my mind, and in, in that way it's freeing. Do, do you believe that sort of post uh, Harvey, you know, post the formation of Time's Up, that things are actually getting better for women to be more creative, more more voices in the room, more ability to, to be at the table than it was when you were first oh, fitting these things with painted black. I, I think it's, it's interesting too because I talk about in the book, there's all these initiatives coming out now, these gender initiatives to bring more women. There's the 4% movement started by my friend Tessa Thompson and talking about trying to get companies to hire more women directors, producers to work with more women directors. Um, which I think is really powerful, but I will never forget Paint It Black being turned down by one of the largest film festivals in the country. And the reason we were told is because they already had the actress-turned-director slot filled at the festival, wow. mm -hmm. literally yeah. in writing. But the fact that I can say this to you now and say this would never happen, somebody would get fired. And look at all of the amazing you know, people who are out there creating and directing and selling shows and getting their work on TV now, you know, I think that that is indicative of incremental change. And I know sometimes it doesn't feel that way and we can feel like, why isn't there, why aren't there more big shakeups? Why isn't there another huge story coming out? Like when we had the Jodie Cantor stories and Ronan Farrow and it can feel like this is all slipping away. But you just have to remember that it is all incremental. And sometimes it is the smallest things put together that create the larger foundational change that and, we uh, need. And in fairness, you know, the Oscars did look and feel very different this yeah, year oh, in yeah. terms of that oh, yeah. attempt to, at any rate, to reflect the diversity that, and, that you're talking about. What um, were your thoughts about this year's Oscars when you were watching it? Oh, I, I, I loved it. You know, it was also, it, it was the first year that I, I was, I'm actually now in the Academy, so I'm a voting member, which is, you know, I always grew up watching my father, who was in West Side Story and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and was a, a, a large part of the old MGM musical culture. My dad was an Academy voter, and I would always go see Academy screenings as a guest of my father's. And when I looked in that room, I didn't, I didn't see other people that looked like me. I didn't see women. I certainly didn't see, you know, non-white women. It, it really looked like people who were just my father. And in that way, growing up in the business, I guess I, I would say that 
I kind of took that and, and I always only ever felt like a guest in my own life. So I only ever felt like, you know, I don't fully belong here. I'm happy to be here. I'm so honored that someone invited me here, but I don't belong here. Whether it's in a pitch meeting or, you know, writing something or uh, trying to direct something, like you always feel just like a slight fraud. And what was so powerful, I think, about what you saw this year was that not only was there real representation as far as stories, um, that those stories were actually really fucking good. The films, the, the work that is being done is really, really good. And uh, there's still a lot more work to do, but that's not nothing. And mm -hmm. I want to make sure to honor and, and, and really give, give credit to when change is happening. You're married to David Cross, the yeah. comedian. And you're very Unfortunately. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and you're very you're very candid in the book about how you and he have had real sort of disagreements in the wake of Me Too. Talk yeah. a little bit about that because I thought it was great what you yeah, described. Yeah, I, I share um, I share in the book a little bit just about some of the conversations that we've had uh, in the last couple of years because I one of the main things I hear from my girlfriends whether they are writers or actresses like whatever they do whatever business industry that they are in is this sense of not really being able to get, especially if they are in, I should say, heterosexual partnerships, uh, not really being able to get through to their husbands or their boyfriends about why all of this matters, why this massive shift matters so much. And, I, and again, as part of that era of ignition, I think a lot of it is not only asking for public accountability uh, and agency, but, but also sharing some of the, the private accountability and agency and, and showing what we will and will not accept in our marriages, in our friendships, whatever those things may be, no matter how personal and private they are. Um, so I talk a little bit about that in the book and, and just sort of in helping David to see some of the some of the reasons why some of the jokes he might have told in the past are inappropriate and problematic and still upsetting to people just sort of helping him to see. You know, it's mm -hmm. the same thing I would ask of anybody. I would, I, I would ask to be told, to be shown, to be able to have the opportunity to learn. That's, that is human nature. And now you have a two-year-old daughter, Marla, right? Yeah. Tell yeah. me about the difference that she's made to you. So I was pregnant with Marlo during the 2016 election, which was crazy. It was crazy to be pregnant with a girl during that election. I think that more than anything radicalized me and I've said it's weaponized me, it's changed me. The experience of going through that election with her inside of my stomach. Um, and since then, you know, again, I, I write some in the book about feeling out of control and not feeling like she's going to be in a world that feels safe and that there's not much I can do about that. So I spend every waking hour and every ounce of my energy as unrealistic as it might be sometimes, trying to change the world around her. And that's all I can do, is mm -hmm. just say, I will fight with every ounce of myself to make things change. Because I know that I can't do anything to hide and keep her safe and keep her away from the world. Um, and I think if everybody had that sort of mentality, if we were all looking at the world not trying to protect and hold in, but trying to change outwardly, proactively, that that might create more possibility for the next generation to, um, to be able to make some of the larger changes that we need. So what's the next kind of, you know, your next act? I mean, uh, this book is called The Era of Ignition, and presumably, you know, you are on fire. We can hear that. Where are you going to take it next? Are you going to focus on the political activism? Are you going to be focusing on, 
you know, raising Marlowe and, and writing uh, or all of it? I mean, what, what is your next goal? I'm going to take a really good nap. <laughs> um, no, I'm going to, I'm, you know, I'm going to do the things that I have been doing, um, remaining as po positive and proactive as I can be. And uh, especially I'm very nervous about the election next year. Um, very scared. It's well, who's excited you most? I mean, you've said that all four candidates, you know, you like them, but is there one who's I love who's all of them. I love Kamala Harris. Yeah. I really love Kamala Harris um, for a lot of reasons. But I also love Elizabeth Warren, you know. I think um, there's a lot to love about, about all of them. And I think that it is not a coincidence that the first four candidates to announce were all women, mm -hmm. you know. I think that even just looking at that through that lens that historic lens, that to me says more than anything else um, about what the 2020 and what our future will look like. Uh, last question, I guess, is like, what do you want people to take away from the era of ignition? What's your major- I wish major... you were like boxers or briefs. <laughs> <laughs> boxers or briefs. Just something really random. Okay, well, which, boxers or briefs. Which real housewife is your favorite? Um, <laughs> wait, what was your question? <laughs> Plug your book for one last time. Oh, fuck my book. Um, it's on it's on sale on Tuesday. I'm gonna be here just up the street at the Vale in conversation with Uzo Aduba and Rebecca Carroll. So you should come to that. Thank you for igniting us all, Amber Tambor. Thank you, Tina. <laughs> Thank you, guys. You've been listening to TBD with me, Tina Brown, brought to you by Wondery. You can subscribe to TBD on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep up with us however you listen to podcasts. And please don't keep TBD all to yourself. Tweet about it, Instagram it, or, you know, try having an actual conversation with a real person. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That's a great way to spread the word. Liked what you heard today? There's more where that came from. Check out my interview with the writer-director of Transparent, Jill Soloway. It's available on Wondery.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. TBD is produced by Tina Brown, Kathleen Russo, Julie Subrin, Karen Compton, Justine Giannino, and Michael Solomon. Original theme music is composed by Forrest Gray. Come back next time for more smart people on TBD. TBD.